Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. El balón inteligente en la caseta, Aaron Ramsey, Ramsey, mano a mano, sigue Ramsey, amaga Ramsey, recorta Ramsey, gol, marca el Arsenal, marca Aaron Ramsey, 0-1. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, fuck Spurs. Yeah, fuck Spurs, yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> it's good to get rid of the PG racing on the podcast as early as possible. Absolutely. Fine. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if people know this or not, but when you submit a podcast, an episode of the podcast, you have to say whether or not it's explicit or not. Because right. if it's on iTunes, it has a little a little red E beside it. So sure. if you're... That's cool. Yeah, like if you're... Um, if, for example, we were doing a podcast from The Good Place and we were saying, what the forking shirt is this? We wouldn't have to put the E. But then we'd say, mm-hmm. what the fucking shit is that cunt Harry Kane doing this time? And we definitely would get our E. I think we've got the E. I think we've got plenty of E in this podcast. Mm. We put the E into podcast, which is impressive because there isn't one in it as a word. Podcast day. Um, podcast day. But start as we mean to go on. I suppose. For sure. About Spurs. Yeah, look, you know what? I think there are things about this podcast which will cause us a little bit of frustration, right? Mm. There were feelings that I had yesterday which weren't necessarily great feelings, and I'm sure you and many of the people listening to this felt those very same feelings, frustration, anxiety, anger, rage, murder, cold-blooded murder, but... I don't want to go there just yet, right? If it's <laughs> if it's all right with you, I would like to start this podcast with something that gives it all a bit of balance. You know, I'd like, I'd like to start with some of the things that I thought were good about yesterday. So can we do okay. that? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. I'd love to. Right, the first thing that was good that I'm going to talk about, I'm sort of going in, in not chronological, but pitchological order. There's a new word for you. Pitchological. So I'm going to start in one place and go further up the pitch. Burned Leno, holy fuck, what the shit. Holy forking shirt balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. We've... You could run out of swear words to describe that double save, couldn't you? It was quite incredible. Yeah, amazing. It was, you know, sometimes a player needs a moment at a club. Yeah. A new club, a new player needs a moment to make you go, okay, I'm sort of, I'm a bit more invested in this guy than I was. You know, I remember in the past finding it a bit difficult to to sort of warm to, to Lauren when he first mm. joined the club. But then... You know, over time, he did things like score a penalty against Tottenham and throttle Phil Neville and kick Cristiano Ronaldo 17 feet in the air. And you go, yep, I like this guy. And I've been a bit hit and miss with Mignolet. 
Mignolet. <laughs> oh, that is the ultimate Freudian slip. It really is. Wow. With Leno, I should say. You've been a bit Mignolet with Leno. I have been a bit Mignolet with Leno, and I feel like on the basis of yesterday, I would like to withdraw some of the Mignolet from that. I will take away. I'll take away the Ming from Mignolet. Okay. Right. So I'll take away the M-I-G-N, which is Ming, which is Mignolet, of course. That was a fucking brilliant save. The second one was just amazing. The first one, I think, you know, it's instinctive. A goalkeeper, you know, comes out when the ball is played through to an attacker that close to him. He spreads himself. You know, the old uh, the old starfish type thing. Peter, mm. Peter Schmeichel was very uh, adept at the old chocolate starfish, wasn't he? And, you know, he sort of perfected, <laughs> perfected that save. Yeah. But Leno made the first one. But the second one was incredible. Yeah, and I think the second one, I mean, it's the stuff goalkeepers work on all the time in training, you know, making the first save, but being able to spring up and make the second. Yeah. I, I suppose, you know, he doesn't overcommit on the first one. He doesn't make it overly flashy. He doesn't go to ground too much. So he is able to produce that second save. But it was a really breathtaking moment. And you're right, he's been in goal for the majority of the season. And there mm. haven't been too many moments where you've gone, wow. You know, what a save or, or what a crucial moment in a game. But actually, in the past couple of games at the Emirates Stadium, I think it was against Barte and then against... Or was it against Southampton and then against Bournemouth? He made mm. pretty decent saves early on that proved uh, quite important. Yeah. And then this was the icing on the cake. I agree with you. I feel like this was a real moment for him and it felt like the moment he arrived at Arsenal. I thought his all-round game was was good but that moment was particularly mm. uh memorable and i you know it, i think it will help him too and it will help his confidence so yeah i think that's a great place to start start at the back start with leno and i thought this was a, a big day for him for sure okay the next place i want to go to is the uh central defensive pairing of socrates and lauren koscielny now the one time that they switched off slightly was when uh that that moment came for leno to shine yeah. socrates just sort of ball watching and he he missed erickson getting behind him but apart from that i thought the two of them were amazing and i was sitting there thinking I wish both of them were five or six years younger because, mm. you know, I, I feel like if we can keep these two guys fit and playing together for the majority of what's left of this season, then our chances of accomplishing what we want to accomplish are, are much higher. Yeah, and I think, you know, they're both good individual defenders, but what we've learned watching Arsenal over the past, however long it is, 20 years, you know, we've... We've seen that it's about balance often. It's about central defensive pairings that mm. work. Uh, and it's not always about the best individuals. These guys are great individual defenders, but they seem to complement each other. They seem to kind of enjoy playing together, I think. There's a, a respect between them and they just they balance each other quite well. So, yeah, they were both great. I thought Socrates, apart from that slightly, uh, you know, that, that moment where he he let someone drift off the back of him. In fact, when Leno made the double save, he was kind of the only Arsenal player who wasn't applauding because he was still, I think, wondering how he'd let the guy slip. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought he was excellent. And actually in both North London derbies, I think he has kind of had the better of Harry Kane. Uh, and I thought yeah. he did again 
again. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the only shot on target Kane had, or the only shot he had in the whole game, was the penalty. You know, so it showed you how well the two central defenders dealt with him. You know, Kane is allowed to do pretty much whatever he wants on a football pitch without any recrimination from the referees. You know, some of the... Look, I know a forward is going to try and protect the ball when a high ball comes in. He's going to back into the central defender. But there's a lot of what he does is, you know, he looks where the defender is and he waits for the moment where he thinks they're going to jump and he backs into them. And it can be quite dangerous. But uh, he, he doesn't get penalised for that at all. So not only do the strikers have to deal with with that, but they have to deal with a, a strong, tall, physical striker who knows how to use his body as well. So, you know, when you know you're more or less not going to get a free kick, you've got to be really, really tough and play the game against him in a particular way. I thought it was interesting that he played the first half against Koscielny, got no joy out of him whatsoever, went over then to stick himself on Socrates and got even less out of Socrates. Mm. So I think the two of them were, were fantastic. They were really good. And I know what you mean about wishing they were five years younger. I think in the case of Koscielny, I particularly wish that. But I do wonder with Socrates, are we are we kind of wishing him into retirement? Sure, yeah, He's yeah. only no, 30. He, yeah, that, that's true. That is true. That is true. You know, I don't want to... Maybe I'll just withdraw that again. You know, I'm happy to correct things on this evening's podcast. <laughs> uh, I'll just wish Koscielny was five years younger. Socrates, 2.4 years younger. Is sure. that all right? I, I, you're not the only person saying it as well, and I think I'm guilty of it too. But, you know, at 30, that's often what you'd think of as mm. sometimes the prime year for a central defender. Often, you know, between kind of 29 32 is when you see their, their best. So uh, I think he's been a great signing. And I think given all the kind of scare stories maybe that came out of Germany about his poor performances in his last season at Dortmund, I think given that, I think he's overachieved really for what I thought we were going to get. Well, yeah, I think you're right though. There's balance in the uh, in the partnership with Koscielny. I think it works yeah. really well, and he is an organizer. He's he's a talker. He's a leader. Of you, uh, as you've explained on this show more than once, you know, in the ground, you can see him, uh, you know, really sticking it to people and trying to get people mm-hmm. doing what they're supposed to be doing. You could see that again yesterday. So those two, and also a quick word for Nacho Monreal, who I thought was brilliant as well at left back. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I yeah. thought like really good performance. Exactly what you'd want. I mean, Kalasnach has been so important for us in recent months, and you didn't miss him in that team. I mean, Monreal was brilliant defensively. I think he made ten ball recoveries, which was the the joint highest of any Arsenal player. Uh, but he was also very good going forward. Should have had an assist yeah. after that brilliant comeback. Mm. And I think as well, I know he's a bit older than Socrates, but I have slightly had the sense this season that he's another who. I think maybe people are have written off a little bit and I think that he I think there is life in him yet you know I'm not saying he's the man for the future but in the time being I think there is plenty of football to be played for him for sure okay I thought midfield central midfield was generally you know fine the two guys mm-hmm. did well in the first half I think Terrera came on did well in the the second half with Xhaka who was good I thought Iwobi was good down the left hand side maybe not quite as switched on defensively as I would like but when he got the ball he really did uh, he worked it very well and he gave us time and he gave us a bit of a, a bit of relief because we were under pressure and they had a lot of the ball etc etc I thought he was really good but again somebody who I haven't always been convinced by is Henrik Mkhitaryan and I think it's only fair to say that in yesterday's game he was really really good and it's following on from a couple of really good performances from him since his return from injury uh, he was uh, incisive from an attacking point of view but I thought what I liked most really about him was that he knew he had 
Mustafi at right back, who's not a natural right back, and he worked extremely hard to protect the guy playing at right back because of that. You know, there were moments where he was back in our box defending. I think there was one cross from the right-hand side from Tottenham when they broke down there. And hang on a minute, who's that Who's that clearing the ball from inside our six-yard box? It's Mkhitaryan. Uh, played the ball that won us the penalty. And I think yeah. he also played the pass of the match, which mm. was behind the Tottenham defence through to Aubameyang, who... I think having watched it again, really should have done better with it. Uh, it was a perfect ball from him uh, to Aubameyang on the run. The kind of situation where, you know, you you would imagine Aubameyang would absolutely be dreaming about. I know there were two defenders there, but, you know, his touch wasn't great and he, he got crowded out. But credit to Mkhitaryan, really, really good. And I was very impressed by what he did. And he had... He has been good, hasn't he, since he came back from injury. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, you mentioned those moments. I think my favourite moment was the just before the pass that won us the penalty, the little, uh, was it a nutmeg? Just a little turn that he did almost on the halfway yeah, line brilliant. to create the space to play that pass. It was really good, and to then execute the pass after that. And he's someone who, you know, there's a lot of talk about Unai Emery likes to change his shape or play different formations. Well, I think almost any formation he picks, I think he would have a place for Henrik Mkhitaryan. Mm. Uh, because... He, he does exactly as you say he does the creative jobs but he is prepared to work back and for someone with that much flair and that much end product in the final third to actually you know just be willing to do that to protect an inexperienced fullback or whoever it might be I think yeah. it's unusual and um, I I have actually criticised not only Mkhitaryan but I've also criticised maybe the the club's decision to invest a salary that huge in, in that player but I think that uh, setting that aside, his contribution when he's actually been on the pitch, certainly in the second half of the season, has been really good. And I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what he might be able to do now between now and the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't always been brilliant defensively or that switched on defensively, but he, he absolutely was yesterday in a big game. And you could see throughout the team, the players were really up for this one. Aaron Ramsey, uh, his final ever North London derby, a great goal, great finish. Let me ask you, when he was going through, how confident were you that he was going to score, like, out of 10? Give it a mark. Pretty confident. I mean, I'll, I'll put it like this. I was more confident that he was going to score running through from the halfway line than I was Aubameyang taking a penalty from 18 yards. <sighs> mm. You know, or 12 yards, sorry. Yeah. Um, I I really thought he was going to score. I'd say I was kind of maybe 8 out of 10. Yeah, confident. me too. I was like an 8 out of 10. Something could go wrong, but... You know, you put him through in in those circumstances. He's got the experience, he's got the technique, he's got the quality to score the goal. We know how much he loves to score goals and uh, his celebration was uh, was enjoyable as well. I love that pointing at the Wembley pit. My pitch, you fucking fucking Spurs mother forkers. And uh, I I tell you, my confidence slightly dipped when I saw he was going to try and go round the keeper. I thought he was going to maybe lob him, take it a bit earlier. But ultimately, he made the right choice. He executed and... I celebrated by jumping up and just inexplicably kicking my sofa. <laughs> you kicked your sofa? Yeah. It was like such a sort of violent um, joy that the only way I could express it was by was by taking my uh, right. emotions out on a piece of furniture. Well, I am, I'm concerned about what you're going to tell me for the rest of this podcast when we get to the bits <laughs> that weren't quite as enjoyable. What the fuck did you to kick To be honest, it was pretty of? much the same every time. It was, <laughs> But the sofa took a real punishment over the course of the 90 minutes. I was really invested in this game. Um, 
in a way that I don't think I usually am when I watch them on television. Yeah. I, I think it might be... Of course, it's the Derby, and they're always huge, and they're always slightly scary, but I suppose... I think I knew what it meant in the context of our season yeah. as well, and, and in the context of the the Champions League. And having just had this sort of reprieve after the Barto game and winning a few matches, I think to have lost certainly would have been a real yep. downer um, and sort of stopped our momentum dead in its tracks. Yeah, OK. So, look, you know, we can talk a bit more about what, what it all means in, in a moment, but I want to ask you about the... The team selection and also the reaction to the team selection, because I heard you talk about this on your one of your videos, maybe the last game, the Bournemouth game or the game before yeah. that. And I heard Tim Stillman talk about it on the Arsenal Vision podcast. And, I, you know, we posted the team news beforehand and, I, you know, it was, uh, you know, Ramsey in, Aubameyang on the bench, blah, blah, blah. I I can't really understand how so many people lost their reason Online, And I know, you know, we're taking Twitter as a measure or a gauge for everything. But some of the reaction was incredible. And I was talking to Andrew Allen before the game. And he was saying that on, on BT, they were going on and on about the team selection and how weird it was. And how can you leave this player out and leave that player out? And I'm looking at it thinking, OK, Mustafi at right back is a bit weird. I'm not necessarily into that. But if Lichstein is not available, I can sort of see the logic to it. He's playing a back four. And he's put the extra man in midfield. Is he going to play Mesut Ozil in a in a away game, a big away game? No, I think everybody knows that. Aaron Ramsey coming in is is pretty uh, is pretty um, par for the course in those circumstances. Even Arsene Wenger didn't play uh, Ozil in some of the big away games, so that's not anything new. Aubameyang or Lacazette, Lacazette or Aubameyang, it's a bit like fifty fifty. You know, one or the other it was always going to be, you know, one striker. And it's a judgment call. You know, he's played Lacazette because Aubameyang started the other night. And, uh, you know, Aubameyang has to start on, on Thursday against Wren. It's a weird thing. This this visceral, incredibly negative reaction to the team selection. Because I think he could pick any team, any combination of the players that we have, and there will be people going fucking spare about it. There would be. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And what I would say is, to be fair, I sometimes, for a laugh, go and look at uh, other teams, uh, and for context, look at other teams' Twitter accounts when they mm. announce the lineup. And the same thing, I think, happens everywhere to an right. extent. I, I think... I think with Arsenal fans, it's maybe particularly pronounced. And I think that's a consequence of the fact that Emery always does spring surprises, you know. And in our minds, we might pick the team that we think it should be for the derby. And you can bet your bottom dollar, Unai Emery thinks something different. Somewhere along the line. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's almost impossible to know what he's going to do from game to game. But I also think that there's a maybe a bigger thing, which is that it's kind of become part of the online ritual maybe around <laughs> yeah. a game maybe I've heard Tim Stillman talk about this and he says you know if you go to the games live a lot of the time you know, don't even pay that much attention to the team news you know you might be in the pub you might look at it and have a couple of sentences about it in your chat with your mates but you probably won't have that level of focus on it but when you're removed from the game when you're at a distance you know you're not watching the warm-up are you all you have to go you're not in the pub all you have to go on is here's the team and here's my reactions and my feelings about the team so I think some of that pent-up uh, anxiety mm. that exists around games is kind of channeled into the responses yeah. to these team selections. Sure. But I, this is a great example for me of why 
you know, you have to sort of suck it and see a little bit because I think ultimately uh, Emery's decisions kind of paid dividends, didn't they? I mean, he left Aubameyang out, sure, but Lacazette uh, laid on the goal for Ramsey and we know that those two have generally combined well. There are complementary characteristics in their play. He went with four at the back and I think defensively, for the most part, we were really, really good. And yeah. You know, even Mustafi, who I don't doubt we'll get on to, I think for, you know, 89 of the 90 minutes was all right, you know. And, uh, no, well, okay, we might take issue with that. But I thought he was. I thought, you know, Monreal justified his selection. Yeah. And 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 the other thing I thought is that Emery, and this is something we haven't talked about that much recently, but we talked about a lot at the start of the season, is that he picks a matchday squad for 90 minutes. And the changes he made, you know, Torreira uh, coming on at half-time, then Aubameyang on, c- coming on, and then Ozil, I think thought in a way sort of strengthened us almost across the 90 minutes um, and made, you know, made ta- Tottenham's task all the harder. Yeah. And I thought his substitutions were effective too. And, and someone starting on the bench, from him, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think he views that as kind of pejorative. I think it's just... Game to game, I think these are the guys I'm going to start with and these are the guys who are going to come on. Do you think, you know, based on the reaction to the team selection versus the performance that we got, as frustrating and disappointing as it was not to win the game, yeah. do you think it might temper some people's reactions the next time we announce a, a starting eleven, or is it just going to be the same? I think it probably is going to be the same, <laughs> well, if I'm honest, because I, I think, it, you know, it's also probably part of the kind of Arsenal culture of um, slight managerial mistrust that I think has evolved over the last five years. But mm. for, from my point of view, what I know is when Unai Emery picks an 11, I feel like there is a plan and there is a strategy behind it. And it's impossible for me to know until that game kicks off and it's happening what that is. And mm. I, I, I personally am prepared to kind of wait and see exactly what it is he has planned. And I don't think it will work every time. But I think pre, uh, pre-judging it before the fact is... Yeah, it's not ideal, is it? Yeah, it's it's weird. And, I'm, you know, I think I'm just not going to look at Twitter <laughs> for the hour before a game uh, from now on because ju- it was just like, oh, my God. I mean, look, I can see why people have maybe some concerns, but it's like just, you know, the game hasn't started yet. You know, there's potentially every chance you can go off on a rage after the game and be fully justified about it, but fuck. Mm. Anyway, look, that's that's the thing. I thought, you know... The way we played, generally speaking, there were some issues, obviously, with, with certain individuals. But I thought, as a as a whole, as a collective, I thought his his tactics, his plan, his team selection was pretty much validated on the day by you know a couple of individual moments, which I think you know a manager can really legislate for to any great extent. You know, with some players, you could say, okay. <laughs> the, the potential for this guy to produce a moment that we're not going to enjoy is high. So if you pick him, perhaps it comes back on you. I'm thinking of one player in particular here, but, you know, uh, strikers missing chances, strikers missing penalties, you know, and you've got two strikers like Lacazette and Aubameyang, you know, y- you can only pick those two or one of those two. Um, so whatever they yeah. do is is sort of on them. And to be fair to Emery... He picked them both, as in, you know, Lacazette happened to play an hour and Aubameyang happened to play half hour, but they were both in the game. They both had roles to play mm. and they both had big chances. 
and they both failed to deliver. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, this is a game we should have won. You know, let's not beat around the bush on that. We absolutely should have taken three points from this yeah. game. And I think that's the reason it stings that we didn't. And, and the officiating undoubtedly played a massive part in that. But I also think when we look at ourselves and our own team and where the culpability lies, I take no pleasure from saying it, but ultimately we have top quality strikers who you would expect to take those opportunities. A lot of the times this season they have done. Unfortunately, on Derby Day, they didn't. No, they didn't. We'll come back to the strikers. So let's talk about their equaliser. You know, at a period (sighs) in the game when... (laughs) When I know, I'm sorry, but we have to, we have to. Um, it was a period in the Turns game. Out it was a penalty after all. I don't know if you've been following. Uh, oh my god, this what is going on with this online discourse? This is been... fucking amazing. Actually, I like Alan Shearer sticking it to a few of the journalists who are saying, "Well, actually, the FA rules say that if the man is moving towards the ball, and like, uh, was it Sam Wallace of the Independent mm. posted a screenshot of the rule?" Uh, which he believed showed that uh, Kane and Tottenham weren't offside and completely missed the paragraph underneath, which com- just contradicted what it was he was trying to say. It's absurd. How could he, how can anyone say that they're not offside in that situation? The cross comes in, Kane goes for the ball. He's fucking, they're offside. All of them, yeah, everyone, every fucking last one of them. I don't get it. And if you have seen that Sam Wallace screen grab, I actually think even in the bit within his circle, which, by the way, I love because it's from the official FA website and contains a typo in the laws of the game where offside is spelled officide, which I enjoy. Um, But even within the bit that he circled, I think his own point is disproved. So the law is transcribed thus, a player in an offside position is moving towards the ball with the intention of playing the ball and is fouled before playing or attempting to play the ball. Uh, So if a player in offside... I'll start again. (laughs) It's so confusing. If a player in offside position is moving towards the ball with the intention of playing the ball and is fouled before playing or attempting to play the ball or challenging an opponent for the ball, the foul is penalised as as occurred before the offside offence. But... He is challenging an opponent for the ball. Yeah, of so, course he is. I mean, within contained within that exact passage is the explanation of why it is a penalty. As soon as he is moving towards, I mean, he's literally jumping for the ball. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's bizarre. Uh, you know, I don't really buy into conspiracy theories. No. About, oh, the media loves Spurs. I mean, Sam Wallace is a Spurs fan, I believe, but. Um, I don't really tend to buy into that stuff, but I do think you might be right about Harry Kane, maybe, as kind of England's captain, England's main man. I think maybe there is a little bit of kind of media and referee guarding around him as an individual. Funnily enough, as Alan Shearer benefited from during his playing days. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, he would know very well all about that. So, look, it's just, I can't believe it. I just can't believe anyone has looked at that and thought, well, actually, he's not offside. I mean, you don't, you have to be blinkered or completely stupid to think that he wasn't offside. Um, The officials got that one completely wrong. There's no two ways about it. It was a terrible decision by the the linesman or the referee's assistant. He got it wrong, 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 all the way wrong. But then I don't know why Mustafi did what Mustafi did. I just, I just, sorry, I, I need to, I need to sort of play a bit of music here just to sort of get over this, 
Mustafi bit, so where is it? Sad music because he he hurts my heart. Yeah, this is the the sound inside your heart when you watch replays of Scott Mustafi. <laughs> oh, let's leave it there. It is the sad walking away music from the Incredible Hulk. Um, the saddest music ever written. The saddest music of all time, for sure. For sure. Uh, I mean, yes, it's so unnecessary. I mean. He's offside, and I suspect Mustafi's panicking a bit because he knows this is Harry Kane, this is a top striker. He's already, he's already put, yeah, yeah, put one away in the first half. Again, offside, but... Um, and I think he just panics, doesn't he? He just panics and thinks, I've not kept up with him. I've got to get something on this. I've got to stop him. Mm. And he pushes him in the back. And, it, you know, once you get past the offside, it's definitely a foul. Oh, it's 100% a foul and 100% a penalty. The referee could not be looking at it any more clearly. It's literally straight in front of him and Mustafi barges into Kane in the box. You know, a player who needs no invitation whatsoever to go to ground. Um, he was sort of in midair, though, so it's just a ridiculous foul from, from Mustafi. Uh, yeah, and in fairness to the referee... Uh, his eyes are completely on that and the ball. It's not his job to spot the offside. That's the linesman who's in perfect line with the Arsenal defence who are pushed quite high and yet still cannot mm. see the most straightforward of offside. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I... Who is that linesman? Let's go round his house. Let's find it. Let's put his information online and have have the might of Arsenal Twitter get at him. No, Calm let's down, not do Andrew. that. We're, we're not, not Liverpool it. fans. We must contain ourselves. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm yeah, but this was a... Um, I mean, look, I said, I think on Twitter, I just couldn't believe what I saw from Mustafi, and so many people said back to me, couldn't you? You've seen <laughs> moments like this a hundred mm. times. And, I, yeah, I, I think it is just exasperating his his capacity to self-destruct. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's got he's got to go. There's just no two ways about it. And I I try to be kind to our players. And I think I think sometimes some people who listen to the show think maybe we're a little bit harsh on him. But he keeps doing things that are so incredibly stupid. And and the thing is, sometimes you can afford that in some areas of the pitch. But in a back four, you can't. You mm. just can't. No. And, yeah, I mean, there comes a point as well where. Uh, there comes a point as well where, you know, you have to, you have to just accept that a guy is who he is. And if you play him, then you run the risk of that kind of thing happening. And I think that's where we are with Mustafi, you know, mm. like every time in every game, there's something that sort of makes you go ah! that way, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes you kick a sofa. Even harder than you did. That's the sofa <laughs> screaming. I, I, Sorry. I'm watching it again, and the, the most maybe bizarre element of it is that Kane's not even Mustafi's man. So Mustafi's kind of at the back post with Jan Vertonghen, and yet he kind of follows in behind and kind of takes over from Koscielny to make the foul. It's really... And Koscielny, it should be pointed out, um, wins the header. Well, actually, I think it may come off 
it comes off the top of Mustafi's head. Oh, but does it? Koscielny certainly does enough, I would say, to stop Kane getting there. Right. Uh, without Mustafi's in- intervention. Yeah. I think Koscielny... I, I, I'm not looking at that and going, well, Mustafi has to make the foul or Kane scores. I don't think that's quite what we're looking at there. Right. Um, but, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of... I did feel for Mustafi a bit because I do think that Look, he played right back briefly. Was it against Bournemouth? I forget. He switched to right back in a recent game. Uh, I'm just, I'm just watching it again here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. What is he doing? The fucking. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't laugh. It's. it's oh it's, my um, god! Yeah, it comes off Mustafi's head. You're right. But I, oh, I'm yeah. just looking at the referee. Just looking fucking straight at it. It's like I know. it's. Oh, and then he sort of turns around and does the thing like, what? What? What are you talking about? I didn't do anything, but I saw you do it. No, you didn't. You didn't. I didn't do it. Whatever you think you saw, I didn't do it. Oh. Apparently, Emmanuel Petit said uh, on RMC French Radio, I was surprised to see Mustafi start in the derby. He's the king of blunders. The king uh, of blunders. <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches, Emmanuel Petit. But that is the thing about Mustafi. Like, I'm not... I'm not saying he's a bad footballer or even a, you know, he he has moments, but they are constantly undercut by these high-profile areas. Yeah, look, and I they mean... they will yeah. forever dog him, I think. Look, leaving aside the fact that he passed the ball at something like 40% accuracy in the game yesterday... Yeah, his crossing was, is uh, terrible. Uh, and and really that kind bad. of stuff, you know. Generally speaking, he is, you know, uh, a competent-ish sort of footballer, but the mistakes... And the decision-making and everything else are just too much. At this point, you know, I hope that whatever decision has been made about Mustafi this summer has been reinforced. Um, it can only be reinforced. You know, we, we've got to... But do you hold Unai Emery responsible for picking him? Because I have to say, I don't. Like, in, in with, without Lichsteiner, without Bellerin, it's not like he's picking Mustafi over Bellerin. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was, a, it was a selection based on availability, and I think he wanted somebody experienced in a game as big as this, you know, a North London derby away from home. Uh, you know, I think if he'd had Bellerin, there'd be no question of Mustafi being in the team. Maybe Lichsteiner would be in the team if he were fit. He wasn't even on the bench. And Ainsley Maitland-Niles, as much as we all want him to be the answer to our problems at right back, has not been particularly convincing when he's been played there. So I don't really have any blame for Emery. I mean, I'm sure he was like, I'll pick him, but fuck, please don't do anything stupid. Just don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything stupid. The team talk. The team talk before the game. Good evening, squadron. <laughs> Don't do anything stupid. Don't do it. Okay, I won't. I promise. All right, good. Oh, he did it. He, he did it. So I don't really blame the manager for that. I think, you know, in some ways you are taking a risk, but I'm not sure, you know, well, I mean, you say it now, and maybe Maitland-Niles couldn't have been any worse than that. But, you know, I think you're right to say that Mustafi's general performance wasn't that bad, despite the fact he couldn't pass the ball to an Arsenal player. And his throw-ins are so fucking weird. What's going on with that? (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of professional footballers whose throw-ins are absolutely Mm. shocking. It's incredible, given that it's such a basic skill within the game. But 
Yeah, I, I think Maitland-Niles as well has had an absence recently. You know, he's not coming into it absolutely on on top of his form, on top of his game. Exactly. Match practice yeah. behind him. I think it would have been a big ask to drop uh, Maitland-Niles into that. Yeah. Into that situation. Particularly in a back four as well. You yeah. Know, Emery wanted to play a back four. It's not like he was going to have wing back. So I, I sympathise with him and I think that goal... Yes, it's it's idiocy from Staffy, but I think you know we're we're very unfortunate as well with the decision from the linesman because mm. it should never have got to that point. Yeah, yeah, maybe the linesman just doesn't like Mustafi. Who knows? Um, so then we, uh, I think you know after they scored, they were quite energized, and I thought uh, Urente and Kane uh, and Lamella. I hate those guys. I really do. Mm. And Danny Rose. Can I just talk a little bit about Danny Rose? Because we're going to talk about the penalty and we're going to talk about the sending off. How did Danny Rose not get sent off for putting his studs into the chest of uh, Jay Leno? Burned Leno. Jesus Christ, I'm having some issues with this guy tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, yeah, considering that he made such a big contribution at the weekend, it's interesting that you cannot remember his name. Um, I apologise to him and to all his acolytes. Sure. Uh, And his dad, Jay Leno. But I think, (laughs) I mean, I know exactly what you mean. Do you think you would be saying that if Torreira hadn't been sent off? Um, I thought he was lucky at the time. I did think he was lucky at the time, but I think the Torreira decision really exacerbates that decision. It makes it much more hard to take. Because I yeah. think Rose should have been booked anyway within the first couple of minutes when he took a dive down the, the right-hand side. He literally uh, jumped in yeah. the air to try and win a free kick. So yeah. He should have been offered two yellows, I agree. Should have been offered two yellows, but I can't understand why that's not a red anyway. Yeah, it's one where I can completely understand why he goes for the ball in that situation. And I would expect an Arsenal player to, to make an attempt to play the ball there because you might score a crucial goal. However, having done that and essentially studied someone in the chest, I think I agree it should be a red card. Yeah. I think if it happens in another part of the pitch, it probably is a red card. I think there's this kind of curious uh, sort of dichotomy in the Premier League where goalkeepers sometimes are really protected and then sometimes not at all. And I sort of think the nature of the contact with goalkeepers can be a little bit more violent and it's mm. kind of seen a slightly more fair game um, and in fairness to Leno he like played on completely when it first happened do you remember like yeah, he, yeah, he gets yeah. hit in the chest and he I think he sort of carries on and repositions himself in the goal it's only afterwards that he's like ah I have eight studs stuck yeah, in yeah he me. didn't roll around like a little bastard no but if he had sort of you know grabbed at his chest or grabbed at his face and I'm not saying he should have done maybe it would have been a different outcome Yeah, I think Spurs being the home team Probably had some say in that. It often helps decisions go the home team's way. Um, but yeah, I think it is a red card. But then I think Torreira is a red card as well. Do we we'll get on to that? Okay, well, yeah. let's talk about that because then we can leave the penalty uh, until the last thing. I think it's really unlucky. I think it's really unlucky. He's gone in, he's got the ball. Uh, and I think Danny Rose has attacked his studs with his knee, basically. I mean, I'm joking, of course, but I think he's basically run into Torreira's studs rather than yeah. Torreira 
going at Rose, if you like. He got the ball. He got there first. He he passed the ball. He was trying to pass the ball back mm. towards the box. He did that. I know his momentum took him through. I know he followed through. Um, but it was... I think it was harsh. I think it's harsh. I don't think he's gone to do him. I think that he has obviously gone to try and just keep the ball. And it's a move we've actually seen Torreira do loads this season. And he, he kind of, you know, contorts his body and somehow comes out with the ball. And it's it's great when it comes off. And there was a little bit of desperation about it because Arsenal was sort of chasing the win at that point. Mm. But I think it's reckless, basically. OK, I've just watched it again a few times. I just want to say, first and foremost, fuck Danny Rose. <laughs> first and foremost, he can stick it up his arse. Uh, he's a wanker, and uh, I, I find it very hard to you know, um, say anything nice about him, so I never will. Um, I'm looking at it, and I think, okay, if I was watching a game as a neutral, and I saw that tackle, yeah. I would probably say, that's a red card. Yeah. <laughs> however, but you're not. You're not. However, in the context of what happened, the period of the game it happened in, the player to whom the foul foul, it's not even a foul really. You know, he didn't he didn't go out to do the player. He got the ball given who it happened to and given who it was against. I can't I just can't fuck them. Fuck it. No. I won't do I it. I admire you for your stuff. I won't do it. If you want to call me uh, biased or anyone listening to this will go, what a biased asshole. You're talking out your arse. You don't know anything. Fine. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't care. I just can't do it. I just won't admit to this. It will okay. not happen. You can think what you like. Anyone listening can think what they like. I'm not <laughs> having it. Not having a single bit of it. So there. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I applaud you. Uh, and I think it's good to take a strong position on it. Yeah. My my position is, mm, I think it probably is a red card. Well, let's put it like this. I don't think we've got any chance of getting it off. <laughs> no, here. no, I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't think so, so either. But, but, so there you, know. you go. But I think Danny Rose should have been sent off as well. I think, yeah. What with Leonard. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but no, I, I'd be surprised if there's a, an appeal for the club. So, the penalty... The penalty. The penalty. I mean, again, I don't think you might take issue with this. I'm not convinced that's a penalty, to be honest. Um, a definite penalty. 100% a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you see them given all the time. All the time. Look, it was soft. It was a soft kind of a penalty. But again, I don't care. I don't care how no. soft it was. And actually, let's not forget... That guy fucking, what's his face? Davinson Sanchez. Davinson. Yeah. What kind of a fucking name is Davinson? I don't know. You know, it's like the the surname of a shit butler. That's what that is. Yeah, it is. Um, More tea, please, Davinson. Yeah, Davinson. You're only here because Carruthers is, is on holidays. <laughs> um, but, you know, he got away with a, a, a stamp on, on Koscielny. In our box, there was a scramble. He left a leg on Koscielny. So fuck him as well. He can go fuck himself along with Danny Rose. I'm mm. just watching it back here. Here it is. It's just happened in real time. Kieran Trippier with his fucking stupid face. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very soft. It's very soft. But fuck him and fuck them. 
Well, also, you know, arm in the back. No, sorry, arm in the back. Arm in the back. Definite penalty. Hundred percent. Should have been sent off as well. Last man. Uh, Aubameyang lucky to survive that that vicious assault. I don't know how he was. No wonder he missed the penalty. I guess. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, not a, not a penalty for me, but neither was there, so I don't care. I was so happy when it was given. I, I was absolutely ecstatic, and then I have to confess, when Aubameyang was stood over it, I mm. had no confidence he would score and I and I know that it might seem sound easy to say that after the fact and it might just be the, the pessimism in you that sort of is trying to manage your expectations but I the people I was watching it with I said oh, I don't think he's going to score this yeah me too I looked at his face and I, I saw I saw Raquel me against Lehman that's what mm. I saw too much of the whites of his eyes or something you know he wasn't and uh, you know look any player can miss a penalty Thierry Henry has missed a penalty. Dennis Bergkamp missed a penalty. Great players down the years for Arsenal have missed penalties. Yeah. But in the 90th minute of a North London derby, to take a penalty that tame, that weak and insipid, I have to say, I had bad thoughts in my head for a few minutes. Oh, it's I, okay. It's it's important that you can come here and confess that and talk about it. And I, you know, I like Aubameyang. I do. Sure. I think and yet the thoughts great. were so bad. The thoughts were there, and they were not good thoughts, James. <laughs> I, I thought about <laughs> going to confession. Forgive yeah. me, Father, for I have sinned. I've had wicked thoughts, and he would say, "And what were those thoughts about?" And I say, "It's about, it's about a footballer," and it's he about would, a footballer. Yeah, but. It was just a, was it Aubameyang? Yeah, he yes, was. it was. You know, I mean, the thing is, if the keeper goes the other way and he just rolls it in the corner, we're all like, "How cool was that?" Yeah, we He's are so cool under pressure, sort of. But like, you don't, you just don't give the goalkeeper a chance. In those circumstances, do not give the keeper a chance. I know. You know, and it's a, it's a horrible thing to say. Uh, and nobody likes to hear nice things said about Harry Kane, but that fucker can take a penalty. He really can. Yeah, I mean, we've I given him no doubt he would score. Absolutely, I looked at him and went, "Ah, oh, for fuck's sake!" There was a part of me that went, "Wow, what a game this would be for Leno." You know, Same, I thought that. I thought what a Leno game did. after that save, and then he makes a penalty yeah. save, and then I looked and went, "Nah, he's going to score because he always scores because we give him fucking too many penalties." Uh, you know, he is a very good penalty taker. He puts them in a place where even if the goalkeeper goes the right way, it's almost impossible to save them. I think there was one at White Hart Lane a couple of years back. I can't remember. It could have been Ospina. So there's slightly mitigating circumstances. But, you know, he took a penalty, and I think Ospina got one of his chocolate wrists to it, and it still mm. went in because of the pace and power on the ball. Mm. You know, if you hit it hard enough and hit it into the corner very few goalkeepers are going to save them. And I think when you take a penalty like that in a North London derby, you just need to be emphatic. You have to be. You yeah. can't do that. You can't be like fucking Penenka-ing or whatever. If it works, you're did a genius, you, but like... Yeah, did you watch the League Cup final by any chance, the penalty shootout? I um, did. And Sterling had the winning kick and... It was. It reminded me of it because it was also at Wembley, and the camera angle was the same. And he just absolutely blasted it into the top corner. It was mm. a genuinely unsavable penalty. Yeah. And while you've been talking, I've gone and I've 
I'm watching back the Aubameyang footage and I've managed to pause it at the point where Lloris actually touches it with his hand. Mm. And it is not near the corner. No, it's not. It's very, it very is, close to the goalkeeper. It's closer uh, to the keeper than closer the, to the corner. Yeah, it's about... It's just over halfway between the centre of the goal and the post. So, you know, it's not a good penalty. But I knew where he, I knew where he was going to put it. Well, he did it before, yeah. didn't he? But I was looking at him going, I know, I know which way he's going with this. So if I knew, Loris knew. Yeah. Well, he's, he's faced him as well in that scenario. And what, what do you make of the, all the, the, the brouhaha over the encroachment? Vertonghen encroaching into the box, and as the ball came back in from Iwobi, really good ball. Uh, let mm. me have a look at it here. And somehow Vertonghen is there to, to get it over the bar. You know, I can see why people might be a bit annoyed, but fuck me. Just score the penalty. It's not, a, it's not an issue then. Score the I fucking mean, penalty. I know what you mean. I think, look, in a, in a post-VAR Premier League, that probably gets retaken. Um, they don't get a penalty. Look, there's no doubt the officiating hurt us on the day. Um, but then we probably wouldn't, we might not have had the penalty. Well, yeah, know. look, the officiating hurt us, but also we were masters of our own destruction in terms of conceding the penalty and then missing the penalty that we were given. Which we had it taken. on the plate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we should have won that game. Whether it was 1-0 or 2-1, we should have won that game. I, should have I mean, been. I've got no idea how the rebound doesn't go in, by the way. It is uh, uh, astonishing, isn't it? How it, it, it seems to clip off for a tongue. I don't, I, I don't think necessarily that Aubameyang is as strong as he should be in that well, situation. Well, I think he's probably still got the penalty in his mind, right? I mean, it's literally yeah, just Yeah, get the fuck up and get on. He looks very light on his feet. Like, he looks... Yeah, he doesn't really compete for that ball. Iwobi does really well because he... He doesn't encroach and he reacts and he gets there first. Mm. Uh, and he puts it on a plate. I mean, it's a big moment. It's a really big moment. It is because, you know, it could have been one point behind them. We'd still be in the top four. You know, it wasn't a good weekend for us because Manchester United won, Chelsea won. We, we had a draw which feels deflating. You know, I think if you'd said to people before the game, you're going to draw 1-1 with Tottenham, I don't know if people would have taken it or not, but they would have said, yeah, I can see how that would happen. That would probably be a reasonable result. But the circumstances, the context, you know, when you're in injury time, basically, and you've got a penalty to win the game and you you fluff your lines that badly, you know, it's hard not to not to focus on the, the negative side of that result. And as I tried to do at the start, you know, I think there were things about this game which were encouraging from an Arsenal point of view. The way we played, you know, Spurs really didn't have very many chances. I know Leno made that save, but that was kind of it, really. You know, mm. uh, the, the centre-halves were good. Um, our strikers were, were not good. We had chances. Lacazette missed a great chance early in the second half and he came off soon afterwards and he was, you know, you could see on the bench he was distraught. Um, that was know, a huge chance, by the way. I mean, was. I don't put I don't put a massive amount of stock in the the early chance he had. You know, the kind no, of the one over his shoulder. Yeah, I think that's a really difficult skill to execute. And if he gets that on target, people, you know, people would say, "Wow, he did really well there." I don't think expect him to score there is reasonable. But the one where Iwobi plays in Montreal and he tucks it back, I mean, that is guilt edged. Uh, and I, I was telling, I thought that. Emery replaced him almost immediately. It almost felt like he was like, I don't know if he's psychologically going to recover from that one because it yeah. was a big miss. Yeah, it was, but like, get the fuck over it. Get over it. 
You know, yeah. there's a lot to play for this season. There's a lot of football left to uh, to contend with. You missed a chance. It was shit. That was bad from you. But get over it. And the same with Aubameyang. You know, just get well, the fuck over it. No, they in fairness, to. and you know, there's lots of stuff doing the rounds today. You know about. Uh, players posting on social media and you know we're all a team we win as a team we lose as a team still love you bro all that kind of stuff great still love you but score your fucking penalty next time (laughs) and take that chance next time don't wallow you can't wallow they can't be allowed to do that I think the substitution was planned for more or less that time anyway you're probably because Aubameyang had been warming up at halftime and he was warming up right through the uh, right through the, the second half so I think he was planning on bringing him on as the game progressed again because you could see the logic to 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 sort of giving him a uh, giving us a sort of an out ball right somebody with pace who could get him behind I mean, it did work and Mkhitaryan played a brilliant pass that Aubameyang should have done better with so yeah. and he you know penalty, we so are it, it, yeah yeah, I mean, I you know I, I do reflect on the early period of the season where we went on that long unbeaten streak and Lacazette and Aubameyang were kind of scoring goals they had no right to and you know outperforming their xG and all this kind of stuff and I think well you know they have predominantly delivered over the course of the season it's just a crying shame because this game for lots of reasons means meant more you know it meant more yeah and uh, yeah I, I you know you don't want to. Maybe that was part of it, how much it meant. You know, maybe that was, I mean, maybe that was a hell of a lot of pressure and maybe that affected the quality of the penalty. It, that would seem logical, right? Yeah, maybe. Just fucking score it. It's a penalty. I really feel like of all the skills in football, it is one of the most simple. You're 12 mm. yards out. You can kick the ball as hard as you fucking like mm. and you should score. I think a you know I don't think it necessarily has to be a striker, you know we've seen in the past good penalty takers at Arsenal who weren't strikers. We might talk about that a bit in part two actually. We, I think we have a question about that, but okay, cool. you know it's it's. I was looking today actually just at the Liverpool game, uh, Liverpool Everton before we start recording, and I was thinking if I was a football manager, I think I'd be in jail. <laughs> Genuinely. Uh, why? Why? Because of the inability of professional footballers to do the fucking simple things consistently. Mm. Controlling the ball, making the right pass, not being fucking idiots. I'm getting a little bit worked up here. But, you know, I think there's um, is a big opportunity missed for us this game. As encouraging as a lot of it was, and I hope, like I genuinely hope that when we go and face Manchester United next Sunday... Not that I'm not paying attention to the Europa League, but, you know, I'm more invested in a game against Manchester United than I am uh, a game against Wren. I hope that the the green shoots that we've seen and the two wins previously and that performance against Tottenham are what we see against United. But it's still so frustrating not to take three points in those circumstances, you know, and to stick it to them, you know, because they've come out of that game feeling fucking great despite playing quite poorly and they've got a lift from it, and they're four points ahead of us now, and we've come out of it having done really well, played very well away from home, and and maybe it's encouraging the fact, the simple fact that we should have won a big away game. Maybe that is something we can get encouraged by. Mm. But flip side is that we didn't and haven't for too long. So, 
Yeah, and then United squeaked a win, didn't they? Chelsea got the win as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to be fair, those are games that you would expect them to win, and I think in our predictions we both had them winning. I think the consequence is it makes that United game feel absolutely massive. I think. It is. You know, it, it always was going to be, but I think if we'd beaten Spurs, we might have felt like, well, you know, if we get a draw from that game, it's not the end of the world. Now it feels like a, uh, a playoff, almost. Yeah. Um, I know there's a long way to go after that and plenty of ways we could screw it up from that point. But I think in terms of what it will do for our confidence and our momentum, a win would be so massive. And four points from those two games would be very decent and respectable, even if, you know, perhaps it it, it could have been six. Yeah. So I, I think it becomes just a huge, huge match, really. I, I was absolutely gutted at full time uh, to have not won the mm. derby. But I think with... 24 hours distance I am more positive about it than negative I feel like there was a lot to be encouraged by in that display and I'm glad we've talked about that in terms of Leno in terms of the defence and I think in terms of the manager as well if you think about the questions that were being asked of him after the defeat at Barté and the way that he has managed the squad and managed the team through that period since then I think he's come through that test and it was a very real test with very legitimate questions being asked. I think he's come through it well. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's all right. So ultimately a very frustrating day, but one which hopefully we can take some of the positives from and uh, perform when we face United at home in what is a Champions League fourth place Mm. six-pointer next weekend. All right, look, we better take a break because we've been going nearly an hour because there was just so much to talk about. So we're going to take a break. We're going to take some of your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. And this week, for the very first time, you can ask us questions on the Arsblog Patreon Discord server. If you don't know what that is, it's like a chat room, various little chat rooms that you have access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Uh, and it's exclusive and private. And there's all kinds of cool stuff goes on in there, like people posting pictures of their dogs, which is amazing. I don't know what else the internet is for, really, uh, beyond that. So if you want to get involved, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash arsblog. And James, I am going to take the first question from there. Okay. And it comes from Jay Giles, uh, who I presume is not Johnny Giles, the former Leeds and Republic of Ireland player. Uh, Hi, guys. When you take a penalty, when you guys take a penalty... This is a question. When you guys take a penalty, do you watch the goalkeeper's movement first or just aim for a target? He said, I always aim for halfway up the inside one of the posts. I think Aubameyang watched for Loris's movement and he didn't move. Who are your top five Arsenal penalty takers over the years? So a number of questions in there. What do you do, James, when you take a penalty? I know we discussed Kick, this the other week, yeah. but you just boot it as Kick hard it as, as, as you can. As I can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And hope. I mean, to be fair, it's not... Not the worst strategy. I mean, you know, Julian Dix did that with great success, I mm. seem to recall. Um, what do you do? I, Penenka? Yeah, Penenka. A Rabona Penenka. Every time. Sure. <laughs> catches a goalkeeper out. No, genuinely, I will pick a corner and then I'll try and put it as far towards that corner as I can. Um, if I'm feeling good, I'll aim towards the top corner. If I'm not feeling that good, I'll go low and hard. Um, mm. So, yeah, but pick a side and stick to it. That's, that was always the thing I was taught. You know, when, you're, when it comes to taking a penalty, make your mind up and stick yeah. with it. Don't change your mind because uh, you can just get confused and then do what Aubameyang did yesterday. That way trouble lies. That way and what trouble was the other lies. question? Top five penalty Top takers? Top five penalty takers over the years. I'd have Rob Van Persie in there. Ooh, Robin Van Persie could take a great penalty for sure. Um, um, Ian Wright? Ian Wright, yes. I mean, Thierry Henry missed a couple, but I think he was generally pretty good. Yeah. Robert Perez was a good penalty taker. Lee Dixon, a good penalty taker as well. Um, yeah. Olivier Giroud was a good penalty taker. Yeah, and I tell you who I always fancied in a shootout was yeah, Ashley Cole. Yeah, I was going to say, was going to say Ashley Cole was very solid. If you look at the the two thousand and five FA Cup final shootout, mm. I think Van Persie and Cole take the two best penalties. I know Vieira's won it in the end, and who else? Van Persie, Cole. Did Freddie Umberg take a penalty yeah, that maybe. day? I think so. I'm trying to think now. Uh, 2005 FA Cup final. Because remember, we didn't have Thierry Henry. Dennis Bergkamp wouldn't have taken a penalty. Reyes uh, had been sent off. Reyes of was sent off, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so Lauren scored, of course. Oh, yes. And Freddie uh, Jumberg, I think, scored as well. Jumberg, Van Persie, Cole Vieira. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we haven't mentioned Arteta or Cazorla. Yeah, Arteta was good. Arteta was pretty good. Cazorla, though, remember when he completely, he ruined the life of that young goalkeeper by scoring a Panenka against him. Yeah, that was terrible. Incredibly offensive. Truly the most evil. I don't like to think about that. The most evil man in football, Santi Cazorla. Mm. I mean, how how could he 
have shown such disrespect to the game and to, to a young goalkeeper who, who knows where he is now. He's probably gone to live in a far-flung land just working in a bar, thinking of the day that Santi Cazorla ruined him. Yes, well, he's, he is quintessentially evil, Santi Cazorla. I think anyone who encounters You can see him, that. You can see it on his face. You can see it, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we haven't really done a top five, but they were all quite good. Who? Let's do top three. Who's the best? I think Van Persie was the best. Actually. Like, if you had to put money on the player scoring the penalty. Oh, or your okay. life. Your very life on the player scoring the penalty. Who I would, would I... Have. My three, these would be my three okay. takers in that situation. I would have Van Persie, uh, Lauren, and Thierry Henry. And I know Lauren's a risk because the sample size is small, but if there's a life at stake, I just feel like he would be cool in that scenario. I think I would have... I, th- I definitely have Van Persie, but just because his technique is so good. Mm. Like, he does not give the goalkeeper a chance with a penalty. Mm. It's in the top corner, and it's hit like a fucking rocket. Uh, so if a goalkeeper makes a save from a penalty, you've got to say it's an amazing save. Yeah. So Van Persie, Ian Wright, Mikel Arteta. Good choices. Who would you have in goal? You. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure okay nice um, I, yeah Seaman for me I, I always fancied Seaman on a penalty oh like who, who did I would I fancy to save a penalty yeah I realised that isn't the question that you had answered don't worry I didn't think that you had actually chosen me for that reason yeah yeah no fine yeah Seaman was good obviously and you know Lehman though was pretty good Lehman Almunia was a reasonable penalty saver mm-hmm. You know, um, would I entrust my life to Manuel Almunia? I'm not sure. Sure, I'm not sure. But my life is on is in the is in the feet of the taker and not the hands of the keeper. So there you go. Very poetic. Um, let's have another question. This is actually also from the Discord, and it's from Pac-Man RBN. Uh, and Pac-Man says, do you think the emphasis for a complete defensive overhaul that was suggested earlier in the season has shifted somewhat? Socrates and Koscielny are looking good, and we will still have Mavropanos in the wings, holding to come back, etc. Look, the idea of like a complete and utter rebuild of the defence was was fanciful. You know, I think one of the things about this season is that we haven't really been able to feel the consistent back four at all for any Mm -hmm. prolonged period of time. Um, And quite often when there has been consistency, it's involved uh, Mustafi. So Mm. I think... Like, I'm looking at Koscielny and I'm thinking, we've, we've discussed the, the possibility of him moving on at the end of this season, haven't we? Should we let him? No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Because when you think about the quality of his performances since he's come back, I know he had that really difficult day against Southampton, but I'm 99.9% sure that was a performance of a guy who hadn't played for a very long time and whose timing just wasn't quite right. We talk about match fitness and match sharpness. 
I think it was more to do with that than some sort of inexorable physical decline or decline in his capabilities. He's proven that in some of the games subsequently, and I think he's been generally very good since he's come back. And I don't think we can say next season... Lauren Koscielny is going to play 38 league games for Arsenal and whatever European games we're in. He's not going to do that. But I do think that when we have two young central defenders in whom we've got a lot of hope, uh, Rob Holding is one and and Mavropanis is another, that it's beneficial to have players like Koscielny around because they're great educators. They're really great educators. You know, you learn so much from having players like that around you. So I don't think we should um, because he's, you know, still at this point probably our our best defender. So yeah. I think you could be looking at a situation where we make one high-profile central defensive signing and maybe a right-back. And I think that's maybe what we'll do this summer because we're going to need a right-back. Licksteiner's going to go in the summer, I assume. Maitland-Niles, I don't think, is the answer. Bellerin's going to be injured, so we're going to need to do something in that situation. Monreal and Kolasinac, I think we'll probably we'll start next season with those guys. I, I'm starting to think that's going to be the case. So yeah. I don't think it's going to be the massive rebuild that everybody thinks we're going to bring in, you know, X amount of defenders. I just don't I don't see it, particularly as our budget is going to be relatively limited anyway. You know, I'd rather spend big on one really good central defender than, than bring in three, two or three, you know, okay players and hope they can make the difference. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I would like to see happen. I I agree. Keep Koscielny. I think he's been largely excellent. And, you know, when you're that age as a footballer, you could kind of fall off a cliff at any time. That is a risk. But I think in terms of his influence on the squad and what young players could learn from him, uh, I would definitely keep him around. I would sell Mustafi, uh, definitely. And I think that would l- leave you needing to bring in at least one centre-half and probably a right-back, like you say. And, and you've got Rob Holding to come back, who I think will play a big part next season. I mean, I, d- I don't think Emery's ever the kind of manager who's going to be like, these are my two centre-halves and they play every single game. You know, much like in central midfield where he's got Torreira, Ganduzi, and Shaka, but they kind of rotate for two positions. I think you could see something similar at centre-half. But I would like to see someone come in who's the right kind of age to potentially be our centre-back for the mm. next you know, five years. And I would send Mavropanos on loan because I just cannot see how he's ever going to get the game time, either Mm. for him to develop sufficiently or for us to even really know what his level is. And I I think he would benefit enormously from a season in, you know, the Bundesliga or or somewhere similar. Yeah, even in the Premier League, who knows? Even in the Premier League, maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I mean... I only mentioned the Bundesliga because I think it was mooted that he might go there at some stage. But and you know we've sent other young players mm. there in Reese Nelson and Smith Rowe. But I would I would send him out, sell Mustafi, and bring in as good a centre half as we can get on our money. Okay. Well, here's here's a question, sort of follow up question. This comes from Ian Lendler, who's at Ian Lendler, and he says, if we sell Mustafi in the summer, at what price would you say? You know what? That's pretty good business, all things considered. Um, oh God, it's difficult because when you think of what we spent, you know. Mm. 
I think if we could get, I don't know, anything north of 10 million quid. Yeah, that was sort of my I, thinking on it as well. Yeah. Uh, and it might not be a lot north of that. Um, 10 million and one. I think anything else would sort of almost be too embarrassing, given what we paid. Um, it's pretty embarrassing, do, whatever way you slice it. Do but. you think there's a the potential that because of what we paid for him, we might deem offers for him unsuitable and thus reject them, even though we want to move him on, but we can't be seen to take that big of a hit? Maybe, but uh, I think I understand that line of questioning, but that would just be cutting off our own nose to spite our face. You know, sometimes you've got to cut your losses um, and recoup what you can, and it's something we've been so terrible at doing historically. I mean, his contract runs until 2021, uh, according to Transfer Market, mm-hmm. um, .co.uk, and that certainly means he's got two years on his deal, which means he's at the exact point where Rouse and Yehi has effectively said, that's when I want players to either sign or be sold. Yeah. And... I think it should be sold for Mustafi. It's not even that I'm completely against the idea of keeping him around as like a squad player, but I just think when you look at holding, when you look at Mavropanos, we have young central defenders with potential. We're talking about bringing someone else in. I think someone's got to go and you know, I don't see the upside really to, to keeping him. I agree. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the right time to move him on. He'll have been here three years. It hasn't worked out. Um, I think, you know, the weight of evidence is there to suggest that he is not going to be the player we thought he might be when he joined. And every couple of weeks, there's just another little bit of evidence. Not a little bit, not a little bit. And, uh, yeah. I think moving him on this summer has got to be one of the one of the priorities. How much they can get for him, this is where what, Raul Sanyehi will... I, again, I was thinking, like, who's going to pay a great deal for a defender whose reputation is... is I'm not going to say in ruins, but, you know, it's not been enhanced in any way by his no. time... At Arsenal. Um, but, you know, I mean, loan fees have increased, haven't they? We, we know that people are paying loan fees, even in, in the Premier yeah. League, for of several million pounds. They might say, well, if we get two years of loan fees out of him and get rid of his salary in that time, that's a sufficient saving. I, you know, I, I don't know how they'll play it, but I can't see anyone paying a huge amount of money for him. Certainly nothing close to what we, what we did. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it, that sort of two years remaining... Thing and how the club have talked about we can't let people get into the last year because there's if these numbers are right on transfer market there's a, a whole clutch of players who will be in that position Mustafi Erzul yeah. Socrates Aubameyang Mkhitaryan um, decisions to be made uh, I guess yeah for sure let's have this question this is from Sam Dallas who's at Sam Dallas Gooner on Twitter and Sam says with Rambo leaving and Cos getting old do you worry that we will not have enough players on the pitch besides say Bella and Awobi next year to have the drive and passion required when playing in a North London derby 
everyone else seems a bit new and removed from the club history. That is a that's a good question. Hmm. Mm. What, what I would say is that I, I kind of think Socrates doesn't know anything about the history of you know Arsenal and Spurs. Particularly, he's not the history of it. the Tottenham. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but he understands what a derby means because he's played in those kinds of games before with Dortmund. And I think he shows that experience in that kind of fixture can translate without the sort of cultural uh, background, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think players can understand the, the importance of a fixture uh, like this yeah. without necessarily being... Yeah. When he scored that goal in the home fixture. Yeah. And what it meant to him, clearly. But you, you would want players around who do, I mean, who do know exactly what it means. Mm. You know, who've passed that down over the years. You know, Koscielny has been there a long time. They they all know and they're professionals and, and everything else. And sometimes I wonder if we do get a little bit carried away with the idea of what things mean to fans versus what they mean to players. You know, it's easy for a player to say, yes, we, you know, um, the derby means everything to us, etc., etc. Of course it does, but it's kind of just another game. It's a more important game than a game against somebody else, but it's still just another game for many players. And I think mm-hmm. as fans, we like when the guys who are on the pitch, you know, we like to feel that they they understand what we're feeling. I think there is something to that, but I do wonder how much it actually plays into how they perform. They still want to win regardless of who they're playing, you know? So, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe some of the younger players coming through well, that's been it. at the club, you know, Alex Iwobi, you know, some of the younger guys who've been at the club uh, through the academy can carry that baton onwards. Maybe that's I, their I, responsibility yeah. in a way. I agree. I think you've got to hope that that comes from the the academy boys who are coming through. But I do think it's kind of the individual player's character as much as their background. You know, someone like Genduzi, I believe he really he really wants to beat Spurs, and he, I I kind of believe he really dislikes them. And I think it's because he's just sort of embraced the club since arriving, not because he mm. has been here particularly long or is from North London. Um, anyway, over to you. Okay, over to me. Uh, Numenoid, who's that? Numenoid sixty eight. Uh, Mm. who says he's old gooner. Uh, Yesterday's result was very disappointing, but isn't it great that we still have things to play for in March other than cup competitions? Not sure if that's a question or a statement. And I I assume he's talking about the top four. Yeah, I mean, look, it keeps seasons alive. I think, you know, we've we've enjoyed some some interesting run-ins, haven't we, in recent years to to this kind of top four situation. Mm. And uh, it's definitely... Every single game is going to have import, it's going to have consequence, and that is nice. And we are still in the hunt for a trophy as well. I mean, we're all talking about Manchester United on Sunday, but it's it's Wren first on Thursday, and that's a big game too because we're fighting on two fronts. So, yeah, I think that is good. I'd rather it was the Premier League and the Champions League that we were competing for, but uh, I'll take it given where we are. Yeah, it is a curiosity, isn't it, that the top four trophy was deemed um, unworthy or not good enough, and now we're all invested in this race for a top four. But you know, that's part of the way things go: the swings and roundabouts, the ups and downs. And we're we're trying to change our trajectory. And the reality of it is, is that this scrap for the top four is interesting and it's exciting. And I think when we talk about 
this season in relation to last season, I'd say at this point we were fairly sure we were nailed on for sixth and that was about as good as it was going to get. Right, based on the way we've been playing and based on our away record. Of course, we didn't win an away game until the final day of the season or whatever it was, or Arsene Wenger's last game. Was it a, a Huddersfield? Um, yes, it was Huddersfield. You know, so there has been an improvement in that regard because we're looking at a team that is fighting for something or fighting against other teams, and that's interesting. That is interesting. You know, more than playing against whoever... And, you know, it doesn't really make any difference what you do. So it gives us something to get invested in. And, yeah, we want more. We want to be challenging for the title and not challenging just for the top four. But considering everything that's gone on, this is the first step back to to being competitive again. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. And I hope we can, in the remaining nine games, continue continue the fight. So, yeah. Uh, this question comes from Eshan, who's Eshan40 on Twitter, and they ask, two months ago, people were talking about offloading Mkhitaryan in the summer because of his wages. Should Arsenal sell Mickey this summer? Um, boom, boom. No, I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have concerns over the wage packet that he's on, but when I think about players who fit into the systems that Unai Emery wants to play... He's definitely one of them. He's made a big contribution in the last couple of weeks since coming back from injury. Maybe we missed him during that period when he was out. Maybe we might have racked up a couple of other points. Um, so I don't think so, no. I think there's too much other work to do. And maybe Mikatarian's pay packet is a problem or an issue. But I don't think in terms of him as a player, even if he can be a bit inconsistent, he is one of the major things that we have to solve. No, I would agree. Uh, you know, I think, I suppose that it, the, ultimately the decision has to be informed by what the state of the budget is, you know, and, and who mm. else we can maybe sell that might take some of that pressure off. And I'm not even necessarily meaning that that has to be a big start, like a Meza Ozil. It, it might just be that by moving out an El Nenny, a Mustafi, uh, a Welbeck, you know, the, by the virtue of these players going, it might just give us a bit more freedom with the wage bill. Yeah. Um, and mean the weight of those guys who are the big, big earners is a little bit less significant. Uh, I would not be in a hurry to sell him, though. Not right now. I just think he's one of the players that seems to make whatever it is Emery wants this team to do tick it, you know it kind of he's been a key ingredient I think in a lot of our better performances so uh, I would at this point definitely be looking to hold on to him okay alright which surprised me slightly I didn't think I would think that a few months ago uh, maybe I underappreciated him during his you know during the first half of the season but now I think it's more clear what he's brought to the team I do think his performances have improved in the last few weeks I do think he's been better and he's riding a bit of a crest of the wave but yeah, I'll be keeping him around. All right. Uh, this one comes from Jason Pickhart at J underscore pick three. Here in the US, media coverage made a big deal about Aubameyang being benched. Mm. Are they just creating controversy slash narrative? We have two first choice strikers and we just went with Laka. I think that's absolutely it. And I think between now and the end of the season, one of them is going to be on the bench. In fact, one of them won't be 
in the Europa League because we know Lacazette's suspended. So I think they are going to alternate more and more. I wouldn't put any money on them both starting against Manchester United. Uh, and I don't think that's a huge issue. I think we'd probably look a little bit better with one up front. Mm. OK. What do you think? I don't see what the big deal is. I know a lot of people were giving out, you know, why aren't we playing Aubameyang in, in this game? Um, like, I don't think if we'd played... If we'd played Lacazette up front and played Aubameyang in one of the wide positions, I don't think the team would have been as balanced mm. as it was against uh, Tottenham on, on uh, Saturday, yesterday. Well, that's it. And we're kind of obsessed on, on individuals here, but I think you... When you look at the collective, I thought collectively it worked on Saturday, and that's kind of all that really counts. Yeah. yeah. Um, any more questions? Any more questions? I tell you what, I have got something that I do want to do before we go. So if you haven't got any more questions, don't don't worry. Let me have a look here and see if I've got any more questions. Uh, one, okay, I've got one here, and then you can do go what you then. need to do. And it comes from Mark Holmes, who's at Holmster seventy nine. Ramsey is still preferred to Ozil in big away games, mm. considering he has nine league games left in his Arsenal career. What does this say about our current options and what we have to do in the transfer market in the summer? I almost didn't want to talk about this today because it's sort of slightly depressing. But I do think when you look at the big matches, the ones where it's really on the line for Emery, I feel like he turns to Ramsey. And for all the talk about, you know, he doesn't fit the system and they decided to not renew his contract. When it comes to the crunch, Ramsey often is in the team. And uh, he needs replacing. He needs replacing in a big way. Mm. And I, I don't think it will be easy. I think it's one of the biggest tasks that we face this summer. Um, do you, and I mean, I'm do worried you, about our capacity to do that. To do you think we're going to go out and sign a, a Ramsey replacement? You know, not necessarily exactly the same kind of player, but somebody to fill his place in the squad and somebody who could potentially be you know, a first-team player week in, week out, which I kind of feel like Ramsey would have been if his future wasn't so up in the air and mm. and everything else. I think we need to. I think we need to sign somebody... Bear in mind that Emery's almost exclusively used Ramsey as a kind of uh, number 10, you know, an advanced midfielder. He's, he played yeah. deep in the cup at Blackpool, I think it was, but uh, he's almost always used him in advanced areas kind of as an alternative to Mesut Ozil. And I think that Emery will want someone else who's able to do that job as a kind of alternative to Mesut Ozil. And we need, I think, a kind of number 10 who can press, who can work hard, who can score goals, who provides a stylistic uh, contrast to mm. Ozil. And, you know, that's a hard thing to find. That's a really hard thing to find, I think. And uh, they won't come cheap, I suspect. <laughs> No, I mean, I think the 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 way we will probably do it is to to find a young player, someone in the age bracket of Torreira, mm. maybe more Torreira than Genduzzi, and hope that he's not too um, too expensive. Like it yeah. could be somebody from the Bundesliga, it could be somebody from Spain. Who knows? Uh, but I think that's how we're going to do it. We're not going to go and buy an established. 26, 27-year-old player, I don't think. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think uh, it's increasingly clear to me that money must have been a huge factor in the Ramsey decision because from a football point of view, mm. he he does kind of fit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, well, look, um, do the thing. What's the thing you want to do? Oh, the thing is just, I had to say, thanks to uh, Angry Gunner, who's at Gunner Angry for pointing this out, but obviously after Liverpool failed to beat Everton tonight in the nil-nil, uh, there's been some activity under the clop out hashtag. Oh, yeah. And I thought after all the Sarri out fun, we should have a couple of these examples. Oh, um, maybe I'll just let me have a look on Twitter here and see if I can. <laughs> In the meantime, I've got a, a couple to be going on with. So this is from one Liverpool fan. We have been found out. I said months ago we needed to sack Klopp if we wanted to win the league. The German Eddie Howe is absolutely useless. We need a real manager to win the title. Hashtag clop out. Hashtag you'll never walk alone. (laughs) (laughs) And then I like this one. This is from um, a Twitter account, which is called clop get out, (laughs) which I really enjoy. (laughs) How can we win anything with a manager who blames the wind every time we drop points? Hashtag clop (laughs) out. Did he blame the wind? I, I hope so. I mean, if he did, maybe I'm clop out too, to be I, honest. I like this one. Uh, it begins with hashtag clop out. Fuck off out of our club, you four-eyed nonce. We need <laughs> one goal and you bring on Milner and Lalana, you absolute fraud. Even Everton look better than us, you stupid twat. Bring back <laughs> Bouvach. Bring back Bouvach, yes. Everton look uh, better than us. Everton do have won like one game in about three months and Liverpool have been top of the league for weeks. I mean, this is a good right, good one from Bilal on a subject that we just touched on, who's a Liverpool fan, and it just says, all in caps, that motherfucker blamed the wind. Hashtag clop out. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. So that's, uh, that is really good fun if you, you know, look for something to pick you up after... Uh, we didn't win our derby. There we drew go. our derby too. We drew ours and they're blaming the wind and they want the manager who quite potentially could bring them the first league title since 1990. Oh, oh, wow. I'd love to see Klopp out, to be honest. I would love it. You'd love him? You'd love what? For him to... I'd love Liverpool to sack him, sure. I yeah. think, you know, yeah, I think he's transformed that team. He's made them a lot stronger and... Oh, uh, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I get it. I get it. Every yeah, yeah. every well, little thing is an advantage for us. Exactly. Embarrassing performance. This is from. <laughs> this is from uh, another account who are called who's at Klopp must go, which I really. I mean, there's a real movement here. Embarrassing performance. We are buckling under the pressure. Klopp, the serial loser, looks scared on the touchline. He is out of ideas. Wow. Oh, he's got another one. Did you say Klopp must go? Is that the guy? Yeah. I think this guy could be a bit of a piss taker. I think he might be a piss taker. He's just gone, my my son can't stop crying (laughs) because he couldn't beat the Manx and now can't even beat Everton. He keeps screaming that Klopp's poor tactics have gifted Man City the title. Hashtag Klopp out. I think that guy could be just winding people up, you know. Still funny, If he is, power to him. I like like the cut of his jib. Yeah, Brilliant. Okay, this, uh, go on, you got one I'll, more. I'll one more, yeah, just James Bradley, Liverpool fan. Klopp has failed. He's had so much investment and has failed to get rid of players like Lalana, who is like a gone-off tin of beans crawling with bacteria. 
And Sturridge, I have to say he's a fraud. And after today, I've changed my colours. Hashtag clop out. Hashtag end of the circus. End of circus. I really like describing Lalana as like a gone off tin of of beans crawling with bacteria. I did look at that and he brought Lalana on. I was going, what the fuck are you doing? He had Shakiri on the bench as well, didn't he? Yeah. And like Lalana looks like a guy who's whose beard, you know, he he came into training one day with a beard. He looks like a guy who can't really grow a beard and he came in one day with with one and everyone said, "What? Well, where'd you get that? What did you do? And he said, I went into a barber shop and I just picked up all the fucking hair that was on the floor and glued it to my face. Yeah. That's what yeah, he yeah, looks yeah. like. Just using like Prit stick, just yeah. attached it all to his face. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, look, fun and games. We've got Wren on Thursday and then Manchester United, of course, uh, in uh, the Premier League next Sunday. We'll be discussing that on the next Arscast Extra. We will have an Arscast for you on Friday as well. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. Hope it was uh, enjoyable, cathartic. Uh, we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 